Welcome to BIV Today. I'm reporter Tyler Orton, and on today's program, we're taking a look at the role of BC's clean technology sector during the current economic climate. There's a lot of changes going on right now, and I've got three great panelists here to discuss it all. I want to first introduce Anna Stukas. She is Vice President of Business Development at Carbon Engineering. Thank you, Anna. We also have with us Jeanette Jackson. She's CEO of Foresight Clean Tech Accelerator Center. She's CEO of Foresight Clean Tech Accelerator Center. And we also have lawyer Rock Ripley. He's a partner at Gowling. He specializes in the tech sector as well. I want to thank all three of you guys for joining us on the program today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. So I'll kick off the discussion here. I don't want to bury the lead right now because the pandemic is undoubtedly upending the economy as we know it. And we're looking for a lot of growth at the same time that British Columbians, well, we're now being hit by those wafts of wildfire smoke over summers. It's very palpable now in a way that it wasn't always. Uh, maybe Jeanette, I, I can start with you. Like, what kind of opportunity do you think the pandemic is providing the clean tech sector in the British Columbia economy at this moment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's no secret that globally, BC is a place that investors and industry look to source amazing clean tech innovation across many sectors. Um, we also know that there are a lot of competing interests. Uh, traditionally, uh, the resource sector and tourism have been really strong candidates for you know, building the BC economy as well. But in the face of COVID, what's happened is we've seen two things, an unprecedented ability for people to actually come together and collaborate on a specific cause. And the second thing is we've seen more funding and capital from both the private and public sectors Go, that have the opportunity to foster a successful transition to BC's green economy. Well, Anna, maybe you can uh, jump in on this because obviously you guys over at uh, Carbon Engineering, you're in a very, very ideal place right now. You're, you're moving into commercialization mode. You've had a lot of excess with funding, but that was before the pandemic. And I, I just want to maybe get you to chime in about kind of the opportunities you see as a company that is moving into that frame of commercialization that so many other companies are probably envious of right now. Absolutely. And I mean, make no mistake, the the pandemic has presented challenges for companies across the board. It has been an extremely challenging time. And we've been very lucky that a huge portion of our workforce has been able to transition to working from home so that our plant operators can safely stay on site and continue operating. But it has taken extraordinary efforts from across our entire team. And it absolutely presents uh, additional uncertainty when it comes to what do the markets look like. But I think the really powerful thing about our clean tech sector is that it offers, offers an opportunity for the province to diversify so that we aren't just looking at one single sector to provide driving economic growth. We're looking at having multiple opportunities to drive that in an industry that is growing. The IPCC says we need to remove hundreds to thousands of billions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere over the course of the next hundred years. That is a tremendous economic opportunity. You could choose to look at that as a cost, but if you instead look at it as an opportunity for innovation, for revenue, for economic development and diversification, 
leveraging a number of the skill sets that BC is already very good at from that clean tech innovation piece to when it comes to scaling up these large clean tech innovations, you need a number of the same skill sets that we have in that in resource industry, whether that's uh, pulp and paper, oil and gas, uh, across the spectrum. So it provides new uh, employment opportunities and diversification that I think is really powerful right now. Yeah, I, I have been following this for such a long time, I think six or seven years. So it is amazing to see kind of these shifts going on. But one of the things I'm always wondering about is some of the regulatory things that a lot of companies might have to be dealing with. And in Rock, in your business, are there still a lot of those hurdles that are proving you know difficult for some companies to navigate? What are the typical challenges that clients might come to you with, with regards to just making sure that they can be successful within the sector? Well, so I'm an intellectual property lawyer, and the clean tech sector, I think, distinguishes itself from a lot of other sectors in that it's a space where patenting makes a lot of sense for the reasons that patenting conventionally has made sense. And what I mean by that is a lot of sectors, for example, the software space, you can make a very good case that uh, patenting isn't a fantastic way to go because of difficulties with respect to enforcement and obtaining a patent and with respect to the amount of capital it costs to get off the ground in the first place. But in the clean tech sector, you typically deal with a lot of tangible creations like the plant I see in Anna's virtual background. Uh, <laughs> you deal with a lot of investment required to make that capital. And that is sort of right in the bailiwick of the patent system where you've got a product that you're selling that is funded by investment that needs protection and where that product is being exported internationally, where we have a network of international treaties to help facilitate that protection. Have some particular businesses been wary about going into certain markets where there might be demand for their technologies, but they're uncertain about whether or not you know, their IP is going to be sufficiently protected? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly those jurisdictions that present a significant market opportunity. I mean, that market opportunity uh, really only matters to a client if they're the ones who are able to capitalize on that opportunity. So if you've got jurisdictions with very weak IP protection, then regardless of the potential size of the market, there's going to be, I think, a reluctance to engage in that jurisdiction because the money may flow somewhere else and you may not be able to re recoup um, recoup those costs and, and generate a profit. But I think generally what you see is that advanced economies and even developing economies like India and China, if you still want to classify a lot of the Chinese economy as developing, have recognized that and have strengthened their IP protection so that if companies like Carbon or lots of other companies want to go into those markets, um, they can have confidence that their technology and their IP rights will be respected. There are absolutely some, some holdovers yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of nervousness on that one, China in particular. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at their 2060 net zero commitment, which was astonishing and I think took everyone by surprise. It presents an enormous opportunity uh, for clean technologies of all types. Uh, but there is still absolutely that fear uh, yeah. in going in. You know, and it may be that some of it is unwarranted. Some of it is based on past history and, and a lot of war wounds. Uh, but I think that that caution is healthy uh, and it encourages companies to take smart steps to ensure that they are 
uh, being intelligent about how they look at entering those markets and ensuring that they have the IP protection in place, uh, as well as the partnerships in place to ensure that you can do that effectively. I think China's a really interesting example because absolutely, uh, you talk about war wounds, that's, that's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> Be because um, 15 years ago, say, the, the, the advice or perception was that you couldn't enforce your IP rights in China. Let's still, let's, it's not a linear uh, thing, mm -hmm. though, that's happening right now. I think there's periods where there's a lot of confidence, and then there's periods where the confidence gets pulled back. And sometimes it's not necessarily a business decision. It's it's something else that's influ influencing the dynamics between the countries. I don't know if this is the best path forward. What we do know is that over 90% of our clean tech companies today have to export to scale. And so, you know, if we really want to talk about BC's role and the opportunities in BC, I'd like to bring it back home and think about domestic adoption and the right funding and opportunities to really achieve the roadmap that's been outlined in the Clean BC plan, which is very progressive for a province in Canada, and, and make sure that, that the companies have the support. And when they're doing that, that's perfect piloting and adoption metrics to then go out and start exporting. You've proven the technology. Uh, and today it's a little bit backwards. It's a little quirky, um, but I don't, uh, the IP opportunities are tremendous, uh, very broadly in clean tech, especially with so much green space in so many new sectors that are, that are going through this transition to be more competitive and innovative. So, and a hundred percent to what Jeanette said, one of the challenges with things being a little bit backwards right now is that we have this track record of brilliant innovations and then they get to that gap where they're trying to commercialize and the opportunities for commercial deployment and procurement and the funding for that procurement and commercial deployment is overseas. And that results in a lot of these companies looking for that funding elsewhere, getting sold elsewhere, and that homegrown technology failing to get commercialized here and us having to buy it back at a premium. 10 years down the road when someone else has invested in that commercialization. So that opportunity for BC to invest and to fund uh, adoption here, you know, it not only keeps these companies here in BC, it also helps us with, with meeting our objectives on clean BC. Now, Jeanette, isn't that like one of the things that people are always concerned about, especially those early stage companies about whether or not maybe they exit too early. And I'm just wondering, what is the advice that you have to give a lot of these companies that really do want to scale, but do it in a way that it's going to make sense for them? It's a great question. And it's, unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all uh, recommendation for the over 297 clean tech companies that we have in the province. Uh, and where I'm going with that is it really depends on where you are in the value chain. You know, are you a small piece of a bigger puzzle? You're probably going to work through channel partners to get your technology into market, which is probably going to set you up for an earlier acquisition then you, then you might want to, to have happen. I mean, the idea here is that we want to build great clean tech companies in BC, scale them to like uh, Anna and, and, and Rock touched on, get great jobs, high paying jobs. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, there's other technologies that are more, uh, let's call them, uh, they, they cover the whole value chain. They're doing things completely new. It's a completely... Uh, out of box, uh, revolutionary, I hate using that word, uh, approach to doing something. But that's when, you know, 
acquisition targets are not as clear. Really, you know, these are the companies that need the hundreds of millions of dollars to scale up and can become that replacement for, uh, for in the economy for some of the other larger multinationals that exist in, in Canada. And just to, I mean, to, to develop that a little more, and I think going to that point and the point Anna just raised, I think what none of us would like to see, um, if we back away from clean tech and go to our more traditional resource sectors, which historically is what the province has relied on for its prosperity, we mine, we log, we ship the raw materials off, we buy finished goods at a premium. What I think we would all hate to see is we have a startup company, we develop some great technology, we can't scale up because we have no domestic buyers. Then we go to a channel partner or foreign investment, we sell the technology off, and then like Anna said, we buy back at a premium. That's not the best way to grow the sector. Yeah, Rock, just with regards to some of those earlier companies, the reason I keep going back to the early stage companies is because we see an opportunity right now for a lot of companies to spur that economic growth. But um, how diligent do they have to be, the, the early stage ones, when it comes to protecting their IP, especially at a time where maybe there might be a bit of a tightening of belts right now? Yeah, you. There, there are some things where you've got some leeway and uh, some other things where you where you don't. So um, for sure, something you can't sacrifice is ensuring that your company owns all the IP it's creating. That's not a particularly expensive thing to paper. Um, it's contractual. It's making sure you have the right documentation in place with any contractors, employees you have. And also, um, really, with patenting, the clock starts, the cost milestone clock starts with when you want to commercialize or publicly disclose your invention. So if you have... Uh, there are issues now with with um, spending the money to secure patent protection, uh, depending on what your markets are and your commercialization schedule, you may be able to uh, play with when you're going to publicly disclose or commercialize your invention. And in that way, change when you have to actually spend the money uh, to secure patent protection. Um, but I would say there's no putting smoke in the back. There's no putting smoke back in the bottle. If you've already commercialized or publicly disclosed, and it can be really hard to tidy up ownership if you don't have it from the outset. So those were the points I, I would, and I do uh, emphasize to, to all companies. Yeah, and Anna, something that I, I'm just very fascinated by though, is just what your own experience has been day to day as you guys move it towards commercialization. I'm, I'm wondering what the appetite is domestically versus internationally when you guys are looking at, at markets that would be interested in this carbon capture technology that you guys have been developing for years? Mm -hmm. Well, and ironically, you know, when you look at the, the rendering of the plant behind me, it surprises a lot of people to hear that the U.S. is actually one of the most progressive markets for commercializing, taking CO2 out of the air and putting it back underground. Uh, because of a combination of the California low carbon fuel standard and the U.S. federal 45Q tax credit. Now, we have a lot of the elements of that here in Canada that we can build on. Uh, the British Columbia low carbon fuel standard very closely parallels the California one. And, you know, the two of them are sort of held up as examples of world leading flexible regulations that can really incentivize innovation and drive high cost on carbon at the margins, uh, which is far more effective than relying on an economy-wide price on pollution in order to drive these um, in innovations 
that help with the harder to abate sectors, uh, things like transportation, aviation, where um, your cost of abatement is hundreds of dollars a ton. Uh, so, you know, really interesting that you can find that right combination of incentives in the U.S. today to go forward. Um, really seeing a lot of activity over in Europe in terms of dedication to uh, clean hydrogen as well as clean fuels. We're seeing, again, the, the starting of that here in Canada with the clean fuel standard. It would be great if Canada could parallel what the U.S. is doing in terms of a carbon capture tax credit uh, that can really help to backstop some of the market risk. Uh, and the other piece is that these are investments that cost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to get off the ground. And so finding those sources of capital and being able to mobilize that capital is absolutely critical. Again, we have some ideas uh, on that in Canada, things like the Canada Infrastructure Bank, where we could do that, uh, but they're all in very early stages. And it's, it's something that is on the newer side of things for us. And there is that uncertainty. Uh, relative to the U.S. where there's much more comfort in deploying investments of that magnitude. Well, why don't we pause right there? I think we need to come back for part two of this discussion. But uh, for those that will be tuning in tomorrow, I just want to remind everybody that with us right now, it's Anna Stukas. She is Vice President of Business Development at Carbon Engineering. We also have with us during this panel today, Jeanette Jackson. She's CEO of Foresight Clean Tech Accelerator Center and lawyer Rock Rip. He's a partner at Gowling. He specializes in technology and intellectual property. That's it for BIV today, but we'll be back tomorrow with part two of our discussion.